Good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, back. For those of you who are um, regular attenders here, and if you're visiting, welcome to you guys as well, like Spence said earlier. Uh, glad you guys are joining us today. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. So um, we are going to dive right in today to our series. Uh, we've been in a series, if you're just joining us, in the book of First Thessalonians in the New Testament, uh, one of the Apostle Paul's two letters to this church, and uh, we'll uh, consider looking at the second one in January, but we're um, approaching the end of this one now. We're in chapter 4, midway through chapter 4, uh, and uh, finish in early December uh, before taking a break for some Christmas sermons and so forth, open mic, we call them, uh, sermons through the new year, and then start something new after that, So, um, which we're excited for as well. But a couple more chapters to go in this book, and we're starting uh, this week kind of a mini-series within a series on eschatology. Eschatology comes from the Greek word uh, eschatos or eschaton, the last things, the study of the last things. Uh, but uh, specifically, a two-week mini-series on Christian hope, uh, living in light of the future. Uh, so this is something uh, that is uh, universally experienced, not just by Christians, but by all human beings. It's unavoidable because we all have a perspective on the future. Uh, whether good or bad, uh, we all believe that the future has something in store for us, and so it affects us in the present. Uh, even if it's passive, it affects us, or maybe it's very active. It, it makes us do something. Uh, so whether it's just looking forward to Christmas or your wedding or whatever it is on a positive side of things, it, it creates some kind of emotion in us in the present. And uh, so this is something that's very Christian and a distinctly Christian level. We have a future that's full of hope, and so the, the scriptures call us to believe in it, but also to live in light of it. And that's what Paul is going to get at here, the writer of this letter, the planter of this church in Thessalonica originally around 50 AD, uh, just a short 30 years after, roughly, after Christ rose from the dead. The, uh, and uh, Paul had his missionary journeys, he had a few of them, but uh, as the book of Acts records, he planted this church and is now separated from them, writing back to them from Athens, so uh, southern Greece area, writing back north of the Macedonian region to encourage the church and, and uh, in uh, today's passage and next week will be part two. He writes on uh, living in light of the future and all kinds of great things about that. So let's read it in full to begin and we'll dive right in. So verses 13 to 18 today, six verses. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. God, thanks so much for this passage today. Thank you that you've gathered us here for uh, possibly a number of reasons today, but uh, nothing less than the fact that you want to speak to us. Uh, you uh, intend, God, uh, to, as uh, Paul says here to this church, you want us to be informed about the future. It's something you care about and you you love us unto, like you love us unto the fact that we would be in very informed about, about what awaits us as Christians, and if we're not Christians yet here today, uh, what can await us, what uh, kind of patience you show them and us who are in the faith by waiting, uh, by not bringing wrath upon the world yet, but uh, by being patient and calling us to your son to essentially 
get on the ark of your son that the floodwaters of, of judgment might not overwhelm us in the end. So uh, help us to be hopeful. Uh, that's the whole point here, really, is to have hope and joy in the fact that Christ is alive and us with him spiritually now who believe and uh, physically in the end. So uh, build us up, God. Help us to learn, uh, but especially to be challenged unto belief, uh, challenged unto faith and encouragement and, and to be equipped to do that for others um, in the church context as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so a little context here. You may have gleaned this from just a, even a surfacey reading of the passage, but the problem that Paul writes to here is theological in nature. Uh, this church uh, didn't have a lot of problems like a lot of other churches that Paul writes to uh, had. Uh, sometimes he gets uh, even a little bit angry or upset uh, with the way churches go theologically. That's not happening here. This church actually is full of faith and full of love. Two kind of key marks of being a believer. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins and love that flows from that uh, unto other brothers and sisters in the faith and even outside the church as well uh, to non-Christians, the yet to be saved. So they have a lot of that going, but Paul is still noting, he hears somehow that this is happening from the church. He gets some correspondence from them or a visitor and hears that there, there's, there, there's a misalignment theologically with the doctrine of resurrection. That they were not, we don't know exactly what it was, but we can piece together some things uh, to say that they were not believing in a bodily resurrection for all people. So that the living were at, at, at an advantage. If Jesus were to come back, they were thinking the living would be at, at an advantage and the dead would be at a disadvantage somehow because uh, they, they weren't believing in a bodily resurrection for all believers. Possibly entertaining more of a, a Greco-Roman philosophy of resurrection, which said that the body was bad, the spirit was good. And so God saves the spirit somehow, but uh, the body needs to be freed from. There might have been some kind of syncretistic way the church was blending that with the Christian resurrection theology, believing that, well, the body's not totally bad, but God's not going to bring the body back from the grave in the end. He's just going to somehow save the spirit, but then be with only those who are living. Kind of strange, I know, but we don't know exactly what's going on here, if all the church believe this or not, but there's probably a faction in the church that was just having a hard time believing that God had in store a bodily resurrection for all Christians, whether living or dead, a glorified bodily resurrection. And that was affecting their hope. As it, sa it says right here, this led them to grieve. They were losing Christian brothers and sisters on a regular basis, whether persecuted unto death or just dying from sickness or natural causes, and they mourned them as people who had no hope. That's key. Grief is not bad or wrong necessarily, he's saying, but they were grieving as people who had no hope. So that there is right off the bat here clearly a, a, wor a worldly way to grieve and a Christian way to grieve. And, and they were grieving in a worldly way, an unnecessarily uh, worldly manner. So the two are very different. The, the one, Christian hope or grief, has hope attached to it, and worldly grief does not. And so it, as a good pastor... Uh, to the church he wants he loves them and he wants them to be saved from grieving without hope in the face of death and so he writes so the rest of the passage here the, the whole passage really and next week's passage uh, is kind of his counter to this younger more spiritually immature mindset that doesn't yet understand resurrection theology well enough doesn't mean they're not saved or that that god's you know upset or paul's upset here he's just saying you're a young you're a young christian you are saved by a gospel you believe in, you trust in, you're saved, but you can also grow in this area. And so he wants to write to them and encourage them uh, what the resurrection really is and to kind of uh, shake them free 
from uh, some other views on eternal life and uh, the future that were more Grecianly philosophical, but not distinctly biblical. All right, so Paul's pastoral response uh, really is what this is. We'll start in verse 13 and go all the way through 18 today and kind of pick up where we left off next week with some more on the same topic in verse or in chapter 5, verse 1 and following. So, But for today, verse, uh, verse 13 here. So he starts by saying, uh, we, we don't, this is, this is huge, we don't want you to be uninformed. We could, we could uh, presuppose that. If it wasn't here, we could kind of get that still, right? That Paul is caring enough to write, and so he wants them to be informed. But he, but he says this here. We really, he doesn't always say this. We don't want you to be uninformed. Uh, the, meaning the resurrection is super important non-negotiable Christian theology. doesn't mean that we all have to be in the same place with our ability to articulate it uh, back to another person, but the explicit rejection of the fact that our bodies will be raised means we're not Christians. The explicit rejection of that idea means that we are not uh, believers. So, and maybe on a lesser level, not, this is probably where the Thessalonians were somewhere in the middle here, but not applying this theology well to our lives means we're at least just misguided, maybe very misguided, but practically unnecessarily hopeless Christians. Like, again, some of these younger Christians in the Thessalonian church uh, were probably in that, in that uh, space. So, so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. And remember, we, we talked about this earlier in the series, too, when Paul shares his heart for the church. It's not just his heart, but, but it's God's. It's not just Paul saying, I care about you, I want you to know these truths and to live in them, but really it's God who wrote this letter ultimately. It's, it's the Spirit of God who inspires the movement of his pen, and so it's God who cares. It's, it's Paul for his church, but behind the curtains, it's God who wants us to know about the resurrection. It means so much more, right? This is not just a history lesson. This is theology. God wants us to know about the resurrection. He wants us to know about eternal life. He wants us to know that it's bodily and physical. It's very earthly. He wants us to have hope and not to grieve. Isn't that alone great? That God does not want you to be sad in this way? There's there's times to be sad. There's seasons to be sad and mourn. But this should not be one of the times. Christians should grieve, but not in a worldly way as those who do not have hope. We should grieve as those who have robust, tangible hope hope in a future where death is destroyed because Christ did that for us 2,000 years ago and promises that we will share in it. So have that in mind as we go forth that God wants to say this to you and me. He has a word for us today about our futures and he wants us to live in light of it in the present. And the flip side of the coin then, there's bad perspectives like the Thessalonian church is entertaining on these matters that actually do, uh, do harm. My old uh, mentor always used to tell me all the time, from the pulpit, but just personally too, he just used to say, and this is not you know, profound, but it's a good reminder, he just said, bad theology hurts people. Bad theology will hurt you. It will hurt me. And this is one classic case, explicitly biblical case, right? Bad theology is making them grieve unnecessarily, right? Who likes to grieve? So bad theology is hurting them, uh, not just with their beliefs and their doctrine, their knowledge, but practically speaking, it's, it's harming them. And so Paul to them, but ultimately God to all of us through the Bible wants to care for us like a good pastor, a good doctor, a good father. He loves and he cares and so he's seeking to correct. All right, so uh, t- to begin to help them here, I like how right away in verse uh, 13, Paul uses the word sleep uh, here as an idiom for death. 
meaning death is temporary, right? It's a very common word or idiom used in the Bible to refer to, to death. Now, Jesus uses this language in Mark 5, 39 to refer to a dead girl he was about to resurrect. And, and he says this to the family who's there mourning and grieving. She's actually dead, but he says to the family, she's not dead, but sleeping. And then he proceeds to, ra- to raise her from uh, the dead. So that's just one place. There are many more. Paul actually uses the phrase a lot here just in this passage today. We don't really use that word a lot today much for death, and that's not to say we should necessarily, uh, it, but, but maybe with other Christians, uh, there's a time for it to be a helpful reminder to each other that loved ones who die in Christ are more asleep than they're dead forever. It's temporary, right? It, it's to look even uh, upon a dead loved one and say that they will, like they do every morning, open their eyes, stretch, wake up, their heart will beat again, their lungs will fill with air, their diaphragm will push up, their eyes will open, blood will pulse through their veins again, and they will live. Just like Christ, just like Lazarus, just like this little girl here, all of whom died uh, but were raised. Christ raised the first two and um, he had a couple of resurrection moments for other people in his ministry, only a couple, but then he himself serving that uh, ultimate one by raising himself from, from the dead. But then he moves on to this uh, really substantial piece here, and I'll walk through this a little bit slowly. He says uh, in verse 14 and, and following, Since we believe Jesus died and rose again, this is the key phrase, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So since we believe, this is basic Christian belief here, we believe Jesus died for our sins and rose again three days later, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him the church, those who have died in him, those who have fallen asleep, but will be raised again someday. So this is huge. Paul's saying it all begins and ends with Christ. We believe, he's tying into something here he knows the church believes. So they're kind of weak in this area of theology over here, but he knows he, they believe basic gospel doctrine. So he, he goes back to that. He says, you believe this, and we'll build off that. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. If we don't, we're not Christians. It's not just a story for, for, the, for the Christian church. It's theological history. So for Christians, we start there. When we mourn those who have died, we think about, or we should think about, Christ's resurrection. Our God who became a man in order to die for our sins, but who also rose again on that first Easter morning to prove he was God and to overwhelm death on our, on our behalf. We think about him. Luke 24, uh, 3 to 5 says in the, elsewhere in the New Testament, referring to Christ's resurrection, but when they went in the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, two angels stood by them in dazzling apparel, as, and as they, they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Classic, love that. But the point is, they did not find the body, right? That, that's, that's the gospel in six words right there. People went in the tomb three days after Jesus died, no body, gospel of Jesus Christ, in, in, in a verse. Many things to say about that, of course, but that's the gospel, Christianity in six words. Jesus actually rose. If he didn't, death is still alive, meaning we're still in our sins, meaning everything Jesus said was a farce, no hope. And then we should grieve as though we have no hope. We should grieve like the world because everything we believed is a sham. But, as Luke 24 says, they did not find 
the body. And, and this alone gives us hope in the face of death. So again, I love how Paul just goes right, there's more to be said here, and we'll get to that in a second, but he just goes back to this foundation of what they've put their trust and faith in. God became a human being, died for sins, and rose again as a human being like them. He's not just God who kind of appeared like a ghost looking like a human and did some things. He's actually like you. God became as human as you are, and this happened. So for human beings then to understand that he's not just God, Jesus, but he's fully human is to say that you have this pattern all throughout history of death, 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 bloop, resurrection, death, 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 death. Well, what was that? What happened? This blip on the radar of he, he interrupts the pattern of death, right? And, and as a human looking at, it'd be one thing for God or, or an angel or some kind of like, you know, spiritual manifestation of, of, of death overcomingness to happen in the world. But for a human to go through this as humans is to say, well, can this happen to me? This happened for him. How, how do we get there? How do I also walk out of my tomb someday? This is where Christian hope starts. This is the soil in which it starts to grow. If we don't know the gospel yet, we start to say, well, we're intrigued, right? So, so Paul goes back and, and says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, but he builds on that foundation. So what he does elsewhere is not just proclaim it, but he makes a connection between Jesus' resurrection, this is where the hope comes from, and ours, our present spiritual one and our future physical one. Uh, as if Christ's was an example of what ours will be like. So th and this is big. We're not going to talk a lot about this entirely today, some, but if you're interested, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great reference point to read on your own time uh, throughout uh, the week here. If you'd like, or talk to one of us. But uh, the argument there, as it kind of is alluded to here, is that Christ, if you want to know what your resurrection will be like, look to Jesus's. Because the Bible doesn't say that Christ raised, was raised in some way, but ours will be very different. That there's no category for that biblically. We might presuppose that, but the Bible would kind of classify that as uh, unnecessary, even silly theology. 1 Corinthians 15 then says, this is one of the verses, or two, three, <laughs> actually three. Uh, it says, for as in Adam, the first human being, all die, the first human being who fell to sin and, and all was corrupted through him. And we are all in him. So as in Adam, all human beings die. So also in Christ, the second Adam, shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then in verse 49, we will bear the image, or just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of, of heaven at our, at our resurrection. So again, what, what he's saying here is our resurrection will be typical of his, or, or his is typical of, of ours. Ours will follow what his started. In other words, our, and there's lots to say here again, but ours will, and this is what I think really helps the Thessalon in the Thessalonian context and all of us who, who share in their theological struggles in this area, ours will be bodily as well, in glory, just like his was. So again, this, the Bible calls this a headship idea, and you see it all over, the, all over the Old Testament, how, again, important it was for Jesus to be human here, that he represents us as a human being who's also God before God the Father, as God the Son. So, in other words, his is typical. Uh, his is a first fruits idea. It's kind of like, the, this is an agrarian metaphor we don't use a lot anymore today, maybe if you're a farmer you do, but um, that there's this first fruits of the crop that guarantees 
that there will be more to come. It's, it's the first initial harvest, in a sense. And so Christ then, in his resurrection, is this first fruits of the resurrection, but we, are, uh, we share in it spiritually now. We're raised spiritually, the Bible says, but we will physically in the future. So, so again, theologically it's untenable to say that Jesus raised up physically in some way to earn our resurrection, but ours will still somehow be qualitatively different. The Bible never says that. It says what happened to Jesus will be the exact thing that happens to us. Human being, human being. You know, God over all. And so we look to his to say, that's what ours will be like. It'll make a difference. We say, as the Bible says here, it will be the same. So, so that key word, or two words, even so, just as, as Christ raised himself from the dead, he died for our sins on a cross in a sub- substitutionary manner and then rose again, even so, we will be raised. Even so, in the same manner, we will be raised bodily in glory to be with Christ here on a new heaven, in a new heaven and a new earth uh, forever and ever. That's the second piece. Uh, the, the third piece here uh, is, and I'll, uh, we'll come back to uh, all of this, but he says here that, that Christ will descend from heaven to earth. In verse 16, so he gets a little more specific on what's going to happen and, and more, of the, more of the what or the how. That'll come up next week too, but in verse 16 he says, For the Lord himself, Jesus himself, will descend from heaven uh, at, with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of, of God, then, then we'll be raised. This is really important, that especially the idea here of, of descending from heaven uh, to, to earth. And I kind of mentioned this before, but this is a very distinct, distinctly Christian perspective on resurrection that other religions just don't share. Other religions focus on uh, another world or maybe a vague sense of heaven or the afterlife when speaking about the future. But Christianity is different. Uh, we believe in the only, the one and only God who created the world and called it good, and though it fell to sin, he saved it. He, he redeemed it through his son, and then this is the key. He promised to return to it to be with us here, to resurrect us here. So our future is very concrete and earthly. It's very earthly. Not more, more earthly than heavenly, we could say. Now, uh, when we talk, before we get back to uh, a little bit more of that, uh, just an aside here that uh, some of you might be aware of this, but if you're not, catch up to speed. Um, I want to address this because this is the only place in the Bible that this idea, anyway, really uh, comes up. But when he talks about the church being caught up in the air uh, to to be with Jesus in the clouds, uh, some of you might be aware this is the verse that proponents of a Christian rapture uh, use to support their position. Uh, If you've... uh, they're kind of uh, out of fad these days, but the Left Behind books, anybody aware of those or read those ever? A couple people. It's a lot of them. I think the first one's called Left Behind, right? There's a whole bunch of other ones, but uh, that would be an example. If you've read them or know a little bit about them, of a, um, well, it's something. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of words for it. But uh, it's uh, a proponents of a rapture that, um, th- that says, and rapture comes from the word uh, rap. Uh, the Latin word rapio here, which means to snatch away or seize. But it's the belief that Jesus returns uh, in a twofold manner. So initially, in an invisible, spiritual way to snatch away his people to heaven before a time of tribulation comes on the earth, before he returns physically to judge and reign on the earth. So it's kind of like a, um, I like to think of it as a, a Jesus bungee cord thing. So Jesus kind of jumps down from, I don't mean to be, 
That's just what it is. He jumps down and kind of like snatches people up invisibly and boing, kind of goes back up to heaven with his people. So then he comes back later physically in, in the way the Bible actually talks about uh, to, to physically reign on earth with his people and judge and, and usher in the eternal state and, and so forth. So it's that kind of idea that has become a little more popular the past hundred years, but never in history before that. So the, the problems with this view are, are many. And, and again, I'm, I'm raising this because, one, it's, uh, it's a thing that you guys might be aware of, and it's important to address these things. It is a perspective some Christians hold, but also because it's, it's contradictory to what I was just saying about dissension, about God coming here and reigning here, because the rapture says earth is not quite as good as heaven, and so Christ comes back and pulls people up. And, and there's, a, there's a variety of views on that, that all, that all are not the same, and so I, I'm trying to generalize here for the sake of time, so you might hold a position on the rapture yourself. It's not quite what I just said, and I understand there's, there's varying perspectives, but in general, uh, that is the perspective, and it's a little bit, again, contradictory to what I just said about our existence in the future being very earthly and about Christ returning, not invisibly, but very physically to raise our physical bodies on a physical earth forever and ever and ever. I'll come back to that again. But the problems, though, just as long as we're here, the problems with the, the rapture theology are many, but I'm not going to go into all of them entirely today, other than just to say that uh, verse 17 here uh, is really the only verse in the entire Bible that even suggests the idea. Uh, it doesn't come up in the book of Revelation, which uh, a lot of which does describe the future. Uh, this is where people go uh, to argue for it. Uh, this is a relatively new idea. It's only about 100 years old, which in and of itself should tell us a lot, right, about uh, certain theological perspectives that are brand new, but, you know, for the vast majority of, of church history have just never been, you know, even a blip on the radar. They've, they've never been a thing. It's brand new. Uh, the, the bigger things here, though, in context is just to see that it, it is, in fact, inconsistent with the context, what Paul is saying. Paul here, as we've been saying, is talking about the end when all the dead, right, and the living, not making any kind of partiality. So all the dead, all the living Christians will be raised. He's not talking about the first secret invisible end that will pertain to just living Christians. So it, it unnecessarily dissects Jesus' return into two returns when in fact the Bible talks about his return and resurrection and judgment all at once. Uh, some theologians call that the parousia constellation. This idea, the parousia means uh, the, the arrival of Christ or advent, essentially. So when Christ uh, returns, when he, when he arrives, the Bible talks about resurrection of the body, well, his return, resurrection of, of the body, the living and the dead, and judgment in the eternal state all in a constellation kind of manner. They all, they all happen, even here in this passage, they all happen at once. But rapture theology kind of pokes at that um, and contradicts it. But also, and this is the most strongest, I think, this last one, it defeats Paul's whole argument here. Now, he's saying that those who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. But rapture theology says the opposite. Those who are alive will kind of precede the dead in the sense that they will be addressed by Christ initially. And, and even kind of primarily, in a sense. See the difference there? Paul's saying the dead, we will not perceive the dead. The dead will rise first, and we will be caught up to be with Christ and, and meet him. But rapture theology flips that around. It says that Christ will address, the dead aren't really in the focus, the living are. They will be raptured up and seized up and caught away with Christ. And so it defeats, and it's really hard to read that. You can take the verse out of context and argue for something, but to put it, kind of place it back into this paragraph even, much less the whole book or the whole New Testament. It's a lot harder to, to argue for it. So 
So that, but that, then the question becomes, what does it mean then to be in the clouds in the air with Christ? Uh, in short, it's, uh, this is not so much literal uh, imagery as symbolic and apocalyptic imagery. Uh, Daniel 7.13 uh, talks about this idea that in the clouds means imagery simply for God's presence. Uh, Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions, and this is the, one of the prophets just seeing a picture of God and, and Jesus at his right hand. Behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, picture of Christ beforehand, and he came to the ancient of days, God, and was presented before him. But the idea there being the clouds of heaven. So cloud imagery elsewhere in the prophets too is just indicative of not so much. So in other words, don't think when you see clouds, think so literally that you think sky or heaven think Jesus' presence uh, prophetically or symbolically, biblically. That's more what's in mind here. It's the same with the air. Remember, Christ is descending from heaven to earth. And so we're, we're not ascending. We're, we're meeting him as he descends. So this is not a, a rapture from earth, but a rapture into his very presence. If you want to be pro-rapture, be pro-rapture that way. I would encourage you anyway. A rapture into his very presence on earth physically so that, this is the whole point, we will always be with him. Always be with him. That, that, that's the, whatever your perspective on the rapture, that's kind of secondary. I, I mean, in one sense, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but at least don't miss verse, um, verse 17. We will be with him always. That's the encouragement we'll, uh, we'll come back to here. All right, but this is, uh, I wanted to address that, but going back to the passage the, with the idea of Christ descending, this is another argument for an actual death-defeating bodily resurrection for God's people in the future. We're not going up there. Uh, with, with his physical return to a physical earth, when he comes here, we're waiting for that, comes a physical bodily resurrection of these very bodies that we inhabit uh, right now. Christ will descend from, from heaven. Some of you guys might be familiar with this imagery in Ezekiel 37. Great imagery uh, where one of the, another one of the prophets, who is kind of a contemporary of Daniel's actually, which we just read from, he sees this vision from God of a bunch of dry bones in a valley. And one of the questions before God, and it might be God to Ezekiel, I forget who, which, where it's directed, but the question is, who will make these bones live? Uh, what, this is a problem. Death's always a problem, biblically. Who's going to solve it? And, and, and God begins to, the, the vision Ezekiel gets is, is these actual bones of dead people. And he, it's, it's amazing the detail, this, this intricate imagery of like, uh, ligaments and sinews and muscles and things being placed back on the bones and they were being remade almost when they stand up and walk around <laughs> you know <laughs> kind of fast forward there a little bit but it's like it, amazing graphic imagery of actual bones being remade that's the vision that's the vision it's actual whether it's our bones or the dust of the earth the hope is god will remake from your bones in the ground unless the lord comes back before we die but if we die, he will remake from your bones or the dust that becomes of your bones, you. He can do it. He's able. That's the hope we have. Is that more robust and hope-filled than, than just, I, I think, heaven, uh, my future is heavenly in the sense that, it will, that I will be in a disembodied spiritual manner floating in the clouds with other clouds forever with a harp. Not as exciting, Right? We're not made for that. We're made for this earth that God called good in the beginning and that he's redeeming even though it fell to, him. Even though it fell to sin. He is redeeming with, with us because all creation is, is redeemed. This is actually not just a, um, a, a true idea, a factual idea, but 
um, can say in here, I, I think it's a gospel idea as, as well, in that the gospel says Christ comes to earth because we could not get to him. The gospel does not say we get to heaven by being good people. The gospel says God descends, not humans ascend. The end of all things will uh, demonstrate this, this as well. Revelation 21 says, and actually I have a chart here, I think, first. Um, <clears throat> the idea of descending then hits more on this gospel idea of Jesus is going to actually return. We say this, right? He's coming back. But here's what we mean. We mean when we say he's coming back, we mean that he's returning to us. We're waiting for him. He saves us by coming to us. There's no ladder tall enough to get to him. There's only God who comes to earth uh, to walk among us, to empathize with us, to advocate for us, to become like us that he might die for us. This is his first advent, right? His first arrival. He came to die. He's going to come, as this third line says, in a similar way to his first advent. He's going to come here. It's by grace we're saved, not by works. And so with the ascending idea, what, what can be behind the veil of that? And I'm not saying that rapture proponents are legalists. Please don't hear that. It's not the point. It's possible to not have that, that combination. But what I am saying is the language is not as gospel-centric or grace-centered or just biblical as the, the, the left side. So with the idea of ascension can sometimes be this kind of married, not-so-great false doctrine of the idea of us going to God or getting in heaven by being good people or the, just the idea it's different than his first advent, I think, alone is kind of strange. But married to it, again, is the idea of it's, it's works. Uh, it, it is, I think if you polled, you know, 100 people out in the streets, you know, what, what does the future hold for those people who do believe in a heaven or kind of in some ways, not Christian, but sort of biblical? How many would say, well, we're going to go to heaven and there's going to be, you know, St. Peter there with keys. There's going to be scales that weigh our good and deed bad. There's going to be a judgment up there. And if we're good enough, we'll get in. Probably majority, I would say. I mean, I don't know. I'm just maybe some of you guys even believe that, or you know someone who does. It's very, it's very predominant, uh, and it's actually partly. Not, I don't think the Thessalonian church is fully there, uh, but there is some kind of Greco-Roman, you know, Western philosophical stuff going on there with the body not being good uh, but being bad, and, and Christ is going to free us from the shackles of the physical to just be with us spiritually in heaven forever. There's some things there that kind of continue into our culture as well that I think we're kind of present in this uh, Grecian culture, too, Greco-Roman culture, in uh, the, first, the first century. But the point here, though, is the idea of God descending is much more gospel. It's much more good news. It's, it's much more freeing. It's much more about us waiting for him, not us kind of being concerned about how are we going to ascend or what are the times and dates or how exactly is that going to work and am I going to be good enough and how do I get up there? We, we, we might not be thinking that when we're talking about rapture or ascension, but here's the, here's the good news. God does not say, come up to me. He says, I'm going to come to you because you can't come to me. You are the bones in the valley. I'm going to come put muscles on your bones and breathe into your lungs and make you alive through my own death and resurrection. You don't make that occur. By grace you're saved. I don't care what you've done, how much you've sinned, how dark your soul is. You can't get more dark than a skeleton on the ground. You can't get more far away from God. If he redeems that, how much more where we are currently, right? I mean, th that's the good news. God descends as gospel imagery. It's not about ascension. So when, when, even when Paul just says here, I, I want to encourage you. I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. To say God, Christ descends 
But the shout of the archangel with the trumpet of God is to say, our God cares about us. He loves us. He wants to come back and get us because we're in trouble. He's coming again the same way he came in the first place. He's going to come again and, and descend. Revelation 21, this is the, some of the last words of the Bible, again, gets at this idea. It says, I saw a new heaven, look at this, and a new earth. This is our future. A new earth. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, coming down to earth, out of heaven, from God. And uh, the Nicene Creed here also, too, for lack of a better place, just to throw this in. The, the, the Nicene Creed, I think I had next, didn't I, Spencer, or not? Is it not next? Uh, says, um, and I'll come back to some of that uh, here. Actually, just to, yeah, I'll start up on top there, too. I, that was my bad. Um, so the, the three key words here to argue for a future bodily resurrection throughout the passage are, and there's, you know, stuff around this, but the idea of, of, of death being sleep, our bodies will wake up, the even so idea, our bodily resurrection will be like Jesus' bodily resurrection, and the descending idea, our future is very earthly. He's going to come here and fix the problem of our, our bodies rotting in the ground. That is a problem that act God actually cares about, if you didn't know. That is a problem. It's not, it's, we don't, Christians don't look at gravestones and say that's it. Their souls are okay, but, th- and, but you know, th- this, is, this is it for their bodies. I, I guess that's a consolation prize for us. There's no consolation prize with the gospel. God says, I save all of you. I save your soul and your body. I will remake it. And so all these, all these ideas of sleep and even so, just like Jesus' bodily resurrection and the idea of descending, not ascending, the new earth. Um, the Nicene Creed here says, one of the early creeds the church wrote, we look for the resurrection of the dead. That's what we look for as Christians. What it means to be a Christian, we wait for it. We look for the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't say, we wait here to spend eternity in heaven. That's nowhere in the early creeds. We don't wait to spend eternity in heaven. We wait for, we look for, we hope for, we anticipate. Could be tomorrow. Praise God, I hope it is. Could be we, we wait for the resurrection of the actual dead. And this is, this is the hope that Christians have for our death and for those loved ones we've lost. So we don't have to grieve. We will grieve because there's that partial separation and death is a horrible thing to experience. There will be grief, but not as ones without, without hope. And so that's why this is, uh, this is important. We'll end with a couple of thoughts here. Um, why is this important? Going back to the first part of this passage, for our joy and, and our hope. Paul does not want them to grieve like non-Christians, and they were. So our joy is at stake. Uh, the, the, the gospel here, this part of the gospel, says to a father and mother who lost their son, not his soul kind of will live on in the cloud somewhere forever, or he's in a better place. But the gospel says, you will hold his hand again on this earth. It's more robust, right? You will hold his hand again. And both of you will live with your Savior physically on a, a, a new glorified version of this earth forever and ever and ever. That's what the gospel says. So we have hope in that. We have joy uh, but it also gives us hope. Death is a defeated enemy. Look at Revelation 20:14 says, some of the last words of the Bible. Look what hell is for. Hell is not just for Satan and his angels. It's not just for people who don't believe the gospel. Hell is for death. 
You know what's going to be thrown in a lake of fire at the end? Death itself. Death will be judged. You see how definitive he judges it? If, if we don't believe in a bodily resurrection, this is wrong. This is inconsistent. This is contradictory. Death, is still, death still wins. Actually, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection bodily, then death wins. There is, there is remaining an undefeated enemy that Christ did, wasn't powerful enough to slay. And the whole thing's a sham. So in the end, our Savior loves us so much, he will throw your death into the lake of fire and hell itself will, death itself will suffer, but not you. Isn't that incredible? And that, that's the hope we have. I mean, death is that much. It's defeated now. It's about to be destroyed. This will happen very soon. It's about to be, it's about to be destroyed. So Christ did that for us. Isn't that, isn't that amazing that he did that? He, he interrupted the pattern of death. It, it, he, he calls death sleep. He says in John 11, All those who believe in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is the hope we have. Our, our joy is at stake, but also, for the, in light of the Thessalonian church here, what they were wrestling with, it's true for us too, our hope and how much we grieve is at stake as well. So where do we go? Uh, verse 18. It's the only imperative here in the whole passage. The only thing to do is to encourage one another, other Christians, with these words. Verse 18 says, therefore, because, all, because of all of this, because of all that I just said, encourage other Christians with these words. So if, if you're not a Christian, you can still be encouraged by this because you heard what the gospel is. You heard that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. He invites you to, to benefit from that great work of God in the world that occurred 2,000 years ago. He loves you. He died in your place and he, he, he rose up again to overwhelm death for you as well. But for Christians, then, this becomes an ongoing evangelistic enterprise. It's this thing we need to keep saying to each other uh, over and over and over again so that we don't grieve like this church is unnecessarily. So we have more hope. We have to, right? Grief's okay, again, there's a way to grieve in a Christian manner, but if we, don't, if we have a, a worldly kind of grief about us, what does that say about our faith to the world watching? There, I think there is an element here of how we go through a funeral experience of another Christian. How does that occur? How do we grieve well? How do we grieve healthily? How do we still have pervasive hope for that person and for all who are gathered still uh, through that? How do we approach it in a gospel manner? I don't think this means that, you know, we, uh, probably obvious, but that we need to start crashing funerals and, and just saying, why are you so sad, you know, or something, or that'd be wrong in about a thousand different ways but 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 i think there is uh, 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 at some point there's a time in light of all this if we really believe this to put your hand on the shoulder of another christian who's suffering look him in the eye and say everything really is going to be okay death really is a defeated enemy it, it, this is god loves you jesus really remember remember don't forget we believe jesus died and rose again the women at the tomb did not find his body. Remember that. And, and project that onto your experience of death. That, that there is a time to say that. And in fact, Christians are the only ones that can really say that and mean, because people say this all the time, everything's going to be okay. Christians really are the only ones that can say that and mean that because Jesus walked out of the tomb. 
if you don't believe death's overcome, every statement of everything's going to be okay is just false pretense. It's just kind of like flattery language. It's like, well, no, it's not. <laughs> because this problem could be resolved, but I'm still going to die someday. You know, I could have a great life, going to die. Make a lot of money, going to die. Be comfortable, going to die. You know, pass this test, going to die. Get rent next month, going to die. You know, everything's not going to be okay. If we don't have Christ, everything's not going to be okay. Don't ever say that to someone if you don't know where it's coming from. But if you believe Jesus woke up from death and he says, so will you if you believe in me, you can really say that and mean that in the darkest of times in your life. In, in, the, in the funeral experiences, literally or figuratively of life, this is what he's saying here. Encourage one another with these words. Not just the pastors. You don't have to be super articulate or anything like that when you say it. This is for all Christians, all of you. If you've been a Christian a day, this is what you need to do. Uh, know the gospel well so that you are an encourager of the gospel unto others. Do you do that? Don't read over that too quickly here. This is the only thing it says do in the whole passage. So we can't look over this. This is what we have to be doing. Know people well enough in your church community where you can receive this encouragement, but also give it uh, in, in the opportune times. Encourage other Christians with these words and evangelize non-Christians with this gospel. Lastly here, uh, note that this is part of the encouragement that, as we said, uh, Jesus is going to descend from heaven. Uh, and, and I uh, failed to mention this earlier, so I'll just kind of tack it on here. Note that Paul is clear that it's those who are in Christ who are saved, not those who are just morally good. Uh, Paul here is not, not saying that we will be clothed in our works and ascend unto heaven to be judged, but rather we are going to be clothed in Christ himself. This is the, the idea, if you didn't know this, of when it says in Christ of being wedded to Christ our husband, our spiritual husband, the church being the bride. We are in him, and, and that's all that God cares about. So whatever you've done, you, your, your sin needs to be dealt with in mine. And when it is, you're wedded unto him, you're in him. So that, notice, this is judgment imagery, and we'll talk more about this next week, but this is, Paul's talking about what the end will be like here. But note, note the, the, the glorious absence of law and morality. What matters? Being in Christ. Being in the fact that he died for you. Being in the fact that he rose for you. It's by faith you're saved, not by what you do. At the end, when books are opened, there will be a book of deeds. But if you're in, the, the only book that matters is the Lamb's book of life. This is, this is the best news you'll read about at the end of the Bible. When hell's being talked about, and it's just this heavy, scary stuff in the end, and it will be. This is the good news. There's not just a book of what you've done, book of deeds. There's the Lamb's book of life. Remember what's in that book? What's in that book? Did you say that? Names, right? What's good news about that? It's not what you've done. The, the final book will be open. It will be, is your name in the book of, did I believe in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sin and bathe in his blood? Name. The worst of people, name. The worst of sinners, name. Cleansed. And they get in. See, that, that to be in Christ when the trumpet sounds and he comes back, he will look for those who wear the robe of Jesus' righteousness, the robe of his blood, not the robe of morality. That's the good news here. 
he will descend unto us, right? He loves us. He's coming back to save. We're not going to climb. We're not going to ascend. We're not going to perform. We're not going to put on a facade. We're not going to act good because we're not. We're not going to act alive when we're dead. We're going to live in the grace that he gives us through his son. So church, believe and encourage one another with these words and evangelize the yet-to-be-saved with this gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, again for your word. Every week we rejoice in how you speak to us uh, in uh, ways that are uh, quite lofty, kind of hard to understand when it comes to resurrection and, and the very end. There are things that are difficult to understand, but we do know that we will be with you always. We do know that you will descend and we won't ascend. We do know that our resurrection will be bodily. We do know, we do know that the death are not at a disadvantage. The living are somehow at, at an advantage. We know that all will be alive, that, that, that the dead, dry bone skeletons that we are spiritually will be addressed physically as well, uh, that, our, that our bodies will be remade. So we, we thank you for that just concrete, tangible, earthly, robust hope that we have for our future. And may we live as though that's true in the present. May that joy, may that hope uh, affect uh, us emotionally in the present. May it be able to curb the not-so-great things that we go through in this life, and there are many. God, I pray the eschatology, the, the idea of the end and what's going to happen there will inform uh, the, uh, the present and how we work out our salvation uh, here as a church and, and individually. So, God, thank you for coming to us when we couldn't go to you. Thank you that you are a God who descends. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.